think it's appropriate to believe that all of us here have been in bad situations that have been made worse. Maybe your plane was late and people are getting antsy and angry, and then someone starts to complain loudly, and you think to yourself, it's bad enough as it is, and you're compounding the problem. The last two sins in our list of sins provided by Paul in Galatians 5 have that special characteristic. If the sins of immorality, false religion, and violence are not enough, just add the sin of drunkenness to them, and they get worse. Or compound the drunks into a debauched party group and see how the problems escalate. This morning we're going to look at the last two words in our list of sins of the flesh in Galatians 5, specifically drunkenness and revelry, uh, which need to be understood not only as sins in themselves, but occasions for other sins to proliferate. That is, they can aggravate the previous sins listed by Paul in verses 19 through 21. Both drunkenness and revelry are sins that remove boundaries or barriers that should have been left in place, and thus they give opportunities for other sins to rush in and make worse what was already a bad situation. But before we look at these two sins of the flesh, let's ask the Lord for his help. Father, indeed, we need the work of your Holy Spirit in our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Father, help us to understand the applications to us personally rather than looking around us. Uh, but to see where we need to address these sins in our lives so that we might know you better. We might grow in our faith and be a testimony of the goodness of the work of Christ in us. We pray in his name. Amen. Why are we talking about drunkenness and revelry this morning? You're probably wondering that, especially if you're new. Well, it's been a while since I've been in the pulpit. I want to take a couple of minutes and remind us of where we are in the book of Galatians because I'm preaching through the book of Galatians. As we got to the area of sin, I've slowed down quite a bit, and we're going through uh, uh, these sins actually in groups we'll look at in just a moment. But let's remind ourselves of what the book of Galatians is about. One of the best ways to understand the book of Galatians is to understand that virtually every world religion Every world religion outside of Christianity, religious or secular, agrees that if there is salvation of some kind or any kind, however salvation is defined, it will come about through human effort and ingenuity. I saw that illustrated recently. Perhaps you saw the president of the World Economic Forum. But this is the way it actually adds to it. He stood in front of this group, the World Economic Forum, which is the think tank supposedly for the world. And he says, the future is not just happening. It is built by us. It is built by a powerful community as you here in this room. We have the means to improve the state of the world. I know my German accent's not that great. But I think it kind of, you get a little bit of the feel. It's a little bit ironic listening to him and a little bit spooky, uh, if you will, the idea that we have the power to change the world. Well, the book of Galatians makes it clear that if man is to be saved and if the state of the world is to truly be improved, the improvement must first happen in the hearts of individual men and women as they submit to Christ and they're transformed by him. Any plan of salvation outside that articulated in Scripture is a lie. Not only that, it is a lie that will lead to much suffering and violence, especially as more people in the culture embrace it. 
Why do people need salvation according to Scripture? Well, because everyone is born with, as Jeremiah calls it, a desperately wicked heart. That may be hard for some to receive that, but the Bible tells us that this is true of each of us. The unregenerate heart is always directed toward that which is sinful, whether it's thoughts, words, deeds. This cannot be changed with some kind, without some kind of supernatural intervention. In this part of the book of Galatians, Paul is talking about the fruit of that sin, the, the effects produced by, this, produced by the sinful nature of man, or what Paul calls the flesh, or the works of the flesh. He, he's going to contrast the works of the flesh with the fruit that's produced in the heart of those who have been born of the Spirit. That, Lord willing, will be in future sermons. But Paul articulates that list for the readers uh, in that uh, passage in Galatians 5, which we heard just a moment ago. I won't repeat it for you. We did, as we've gone through this, we've broken down this list into four categories. First are the sins of immorality, including adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. The second... The sins of false religion, idolatry, and sorcery. Third, the sins of violence, including hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, and murders. Today I want to look at the last two, drunkenness and revelries. Some commentators like to categorize these, or they they describe these as the category of social sins. And there's a good reason for that. I think it's appropriate. Both sins are typically done in a social context, but another aspect of them that I think perhaps is missed that each one is also a gateway sin uh, for the other sins on the list. Drunkenness and revelry are by nature sins that cause us to drop our guard, to step across lines that should not be stepped across. They provide opportunities for the flesh that might have been guarded against, making them particularly dangerous, including the sins of immorality, false religion, and violence. Now, let's remember here that Paul's list is not complete. We see here he uses the words and the like. We're just going to restrict ourselves to these last two words of the list. We could name others from other lists that he gives, uh, but we've uh, restricted ourselves just to these sins that are listed by Paul in Galatians 5. Now, before we examine these sins, let's define our terms. And one term in particular, the word drunkenness, is typically associated with alcohol. But, of course, we know that people employ all kinds of substances specifically to create non-medicinal, and I emphasize that, non-medicinal, mind-altering experiences. So we need to understand that these two will be included in the category of drunkenness, whether it's getting high or tripping out. The Bible clearly condemns those and calls us to remain sober and vigilant, 1 Peter 5, 8. What does the Bible teach us about drinking alcohol? Well, most people in Reformed circles know the Bible does not describe all drinking alcohol as a sin in itself. For example, we look at Psalm 104, where it's described as cheering the heart. The psalmist says, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. Drinking wine is associated with enjoying the fruit of one's labor and of the good things of the earth that God has provided. It recognizes that all uh, of the creation is God's creation, and he's given it to us for our enjoyment, for our good. 
In the book of John, we read of Jesus turning water to wine at the wedding at Cana in John 2. It was good wine, according to the text, six water pots worth of it. The wine had alcohol in it. All attempts to describe it as merely grape juice and other passages as wine at that time was just grape juice, they all fail. Uh, I think most of them are based on one man's uh, misunderstanding of that uh, time. Uh, third, we know that Jesus drank wine. We see it in the, uh, up, the upper room. Uh, we can go through lots of different passages that talk about wine, the drinking of wine or strong drink, uh, and see that the Bible does not condemn it outright. But having said that, we need to acknowledge excessive drinking of alcohol leads to drunkenness, and drunkenness has an incredibly deleterious effect on a family and a culture. If I was to ask you to raise your hand, I'm not asking you to do that, but if I was to say, how many of you have been negatively affected by drunkenness? Not necessarily that you yourself were drunk, but someone around you, someone near to you uh, was a drunk. Uh, how many of you would raise your hands? I suppose most of you would in some negative way. I, myself, personally, in my own family, I had a family member, a close family member, uh, who was a drunk. And I remember the time where he was drunk and he crossed over the median at a highway and hit another driver head on. Uh, he had a bandage around his head for I don't know how long, cuts all across his forehead as he went through the windshield. Not only him, but then what about the guy that he hit? And his family, his wife, his kids, his work, you see how it multiplies. The shock waves from the effects of one person indulging in drunkenness are amazing. They, they just spread everywhere. Drunkenness leads to lost wages, to theft, to violence, deceit, immorality, any number of other sins. We see a number of examples of drunkenness in the Bible. Again, so many people think of the Bible as just, oh, the Bible is just, don't do this, don't do that. It's actually interesting, and you see even some of the godly men described as, as dealing with or addressing uh, drunkenness. Uh, we see Noah, who became drunk, leading to his personal shame. I heard a sermon by Joel Beakey talking about this, and he describes, he spent an hour talking on this subject, which I won't do today. Uh, but he spent an hour talking about the personal shame of Noah. Think about this man who just come through the ark. He built the ark, comes through the flood, and then he just crashes and burns and gets drunk. What are the effects on his family? Well, we see the, the rift between the brothers now because Ham was making fun of it and mocking it. Noah curses Ham's son. I mean, the implication that a whole people group is affected by this. We think of the daughters of Lot who got him drunk so that they could have uh, children. We think of David encouraging Uriah to drink and trying to get him drunk so he could cover David's adultery. We even read of drunkenness in the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Imagine that. The Bible warns us, then, about drunkenness and its effects. We see, for example, in the book of Proverbs, we just saw in the Old Testament reading uh, that Taylor read for us out of Proverbs 23, who has woe? It's describing here a drunkard, or in our popular parlance, an addict. Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Isn't that an interesting phrase? 
Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger over or linger long over wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. At last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. And he, at the end he says, they struck me and I wasn't hurt. Didn't even feel it uh, because of the effects of the alcohol. They have beaten me, but I didn't feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? You think, well, wouldn't you awake and say, this hangover is killing me. I got bruises. This is stupid. I'm going to get along with it. He says, well, I wake, I, wake, I wake up and I say, give me another one. Probably heard the expression, hair of the dog that bit you, describing the person that says, I've got this terrible hangover. I need to drink some more to get rid of it. You see the, the thinking that goes with it. It's not a pretty picture. It's graphic. It's a graphic description of someone who has succumbed to drunkenness and is overtaken by it. What else does the proverb say? For example, Proverbs 20, verse 1, describes that a person is foolish who is given to drunkenness. <clears throat> uh, Solomon writes, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led, by it, uh, led astray by it is not wise. It leads to poverty. We read in Proverbs 23, 21, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. No wonder that we are told in Scripture that elders are to be those who are temperate, sober-minded. If you want someone in leadership <clears throat> to be a good leader, they certainly cannot be those who are given to drunkenness. So that's a requirement for eldership. Drunkenness is also serious enough. We see it in the list here. It's also in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where Paul writes, Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, there's that word again, uh, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It says a person who is given to this and practices these things is not someone who should say, well, it's all covered by grace, I'm fine, I'm just going to move along, God will forgive it. He says, no, if this is a practicing part of your life, uh, you need to deal with it seriously. He says the same thing in, this, in our verse today. It says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, <clears throat> how should we deal with drunkenness? We might think, well, if there's so much to be lost, maybe I should just not drink at all. And some Christians have opted for that. Uh, but this could easily morph into legalism. It states that all drinking is sin. You say, well, if alcohol leads to drunkenness... Uh, and drunkenness is a sin, then alcohol is a sin. Well, that's, that's a bad logic that goes that way, and we have to be careful about that. It can, we can morph into this kind of legalism that states that all drinking is sin, and Paul has uh, warned us already about that kind of thinking in the letter to Galatians. Let me remind us. He gave us three categories in this book, categories of Christian liberty, and then the two places you can fall off into license or into legalism. Christian liberty is where the Christian decides for himself. It's a neutral area where God has not spoken one thing or another. It leaves that to the person's uh, wisdom and discretion as to what is appropriate for that individual Christian. And, uh, and to practice life and godliness. Now, again, as I said, the two errors here are license. That is freedom. I can do whatever I want. I'm free to drink, so I can drink uh, any amount that I want. And let me just say here that I think that often the error, this is the error that a lot of young Christian reformed young men fall into. And when they want to display the plumage of their Christian liberty, saying, I can drink, I can, I can drink, let me watch this. And they begin to drink and they're, they're sunk there. Let me just flaunt this in front of you that I can drink. I've seen this with any number of reformed, yes, reformed 
Christian young man, uh, don't do that. That is a terrible lack of judgment. And uh, so I want to warn you young men in particular about that. The other one is to fall into legalism, saying, well, I'm just going to create a law where there isn't one. Instead of license, I'm going to swing over here to legalism and say, I'm just, it's a sin to do any kind of drinking of any kind of alcohol whatsoever. And so I'm not going to even, I'm not going to even take NyQuil, because NyQuil might have, I don't think I've heard it has alcohol in it, so I'm not going to drink that. I'm going to avoid any kinds of uh, alcohol altogether. Well, the swinging back and forth is not what the Lord has in mind. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, The devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is the worse. You see why, of course. He relies upon your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. But do not let us be fooled. We have to keep both our eyes on the goal that goes straight through between both errors. What's the straight through? Christian liberty. What is, the, what is Christian liberty? Well, Christian liberty is going to include that means you're going to have people that don't drink and people who do. Those who do must do so in wisdom and careful, careful and consistent moderation. But maybe you're thinking to yourself, you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't really have that problem. So the sermon doesn't apply to me. I know other people it applies to. Well, let me, let me broaden this up and let's see if I can catch a few of you more in this net. Uh, most of you are aware that the Ten Commandments are categories of sins. It's interesting to note that the Westminster Larger Catechism puts drunkenness in the category of the Seventh Commandment regarding adultery. You might think of this as sins of passion, indulgence, or unlawful self-gratification. So you may not have a specific problem with drunkenness, but what about the other sins in that category? Before you look down on others who have a problem with drunkenness, let's do a little introspection. Again, the larger catechism helps us in this when it describes the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment. Besides adultery, it includes the following. And this is not thorough. I'm just giving you a select list. All unclean imaginations, all unclean thoughts, purposes, and unclean affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereto, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews. That's not beef stew, that is grudges or, um, uh, well, we'll say grudges. Resorting to them, you know, resorting back to those. Idleness, gluttony, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, and I'll include here entertainment. And you think about the amount of music you listen to. Now you say, well, I don't listen to the, the bad stuff. But if you're listening to secular music, and again, I'm not getting fundamentalist here, because I do. I listen to it. But if you listen to it for hour after hour after hour and put off listening to sermons or a good talk, a, uh, a scripture, a good book, 
If, if this is all pushed away so that you could indulge yourself just in constant, I want to feel good about these, these songs that are just sentimental, that are uh, things that are fun, um, perhaps this is going to apply to you. <clears throat> I might add to this, pornography, I think potentially even gaming and social media that can be used as a means of escape and self-indulgence rather than you know, pure entertainment for the moment, I understand that. But these can be abused. I was going to mention shopping, but I thought I might uh, just lose a lot of you on that one. Uh, I suppose anything could be added here to some point. We could abuse any one of these things. What is the biblical alternative to drunkenness? <clears throat> well, the larger catechism gives you the other side of it as well. The duties required include chastity in body, mind, affections, words, behavior, watchfulness over the eyes and the senses, keeping of chaste company, modest apparel. By the way, all these have scriptures to them. These are not just things that these guys came up with. Uh, this is, you can look at the scriptures related to each one of these. These are the category. Uh, shunning all occasions of uncleanness, resisting temptations thereunto. <clears throat> now, some of these don't convict you. You either don't have a conscience or you don't have a pulse. So how are we, not only are we, though, to put off drunkenness, we're told this over and over in Scripture, but we are to put on godliness. We see this, this uh, pattern given to us in Scripture by Paul a number of times where it's the, not just putting off, don't do these things, but there's a positive put on. Well, what would that be? great one comes in Ephesians 5:18 through 21. Listen to what Paul says. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. <clears throat> so don't be controlled by wine drunkenness. Instead, be controlled, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to each other in spiritual songs. This spiritual language, uh, singing to the Lord. And we think of our, our hymnody here, giving of thanks, mutual submission and fear in the Lord, exercising your spiritual gifts. These are all ways in which we can put off the sin of drunkenness and put on the filling of the Spirit and the outworking of the Spirit in the life of the body of Christ. Well, if drunkenness is not bad enough for its personal and familial problems, revelry is worse. The Greek word for revelry also is translated carousing in some translations. It refers to debauched partying. Debauched partying. I like that definition. That's kind of a good one. This then refers to sinning in crowds. The last several years, I've become fascinated by the psychology and the mechanics of crowds. I've read several books and articles about crowds and the effect that crowd has on individuals within the crowd. <clears throat> Let me give you one of those observations. I'm going to quote a source describing this about how crowds affect individuals and cause them to do things that they wouldn't have done by themselves. The quote says this, people in crowds often find themselves saying, thinking, feeling things that if they were alone might never have happened. When we are as human beings in a crowd, there is a temptation and a susceptibility to act and to think differently, even to perceive differently than if we were alone or in a much smaller group, end of quote. 
Now, that doesn't make all crowds wrong in themselves. We have a crowd here this morning. We'll see this a little bit more in just a moment. But there's an inherent danger in crowds that should make us cautious and encourage us to make wise choices about joining in on them. Whether it's a group of so-called friends, where it has the potential of negative peer pressure, uh, even, for example, a frat party, some of them you can see in some of the colleges, Uh, some sporting events, you've seen some of the effects of those, even a World Cup uh, kind of events where the partying is going, the drinking is going, and the violence and people die. Uh, You know, use wisdom. Even a concert can do this. Uh, Concerts have this way of just creating this kind of sensation that is not there for the individuals, but it's there collectively. There's something different. I've mentioned before from the pulpit a book that I've read entitled uh, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay. wrote it in 1841. It's interesting that McKay puts these two together. Popular delusions, madness of crowds. I can't help but think of the current wave, and I've actually asked this to people before, what in the world is driving what's going on in our culture? The transgenderism, where people think, I can be not just transgender, but trans species. I can be an animal if I want. If I just picture in my mind, I can be something other than what I am. What is this wave that's happening? And I thought, it's the crowd. The crowd develops this mind. I'll read you a quote here on that in just a moment. But people are indulging in thoughts that they never would have thought of on their own, but the social media frenzy and the perceived benefits of being in the in crowd just overwhelm them and they join in. And while I'm on that, young ladies, let me say that perhaps the most susceptible to the effects of the crowd through social media is young women. That's been shown and documented so many times uh, that I don't need to go into that. But just let me encourage you young ladies about social media. It can be very, very damaging. Uh, So use wisdom. Frankly, I'd say just don't use it. Uh, But... There you go. I'm not going to be a legalist. Uh, one author, Gustave Le Bon, wrote a book entitled The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind in 1895. Gustav's main point was that when you put more and more people together, that is more and more minds together, <clears throat> there arises from the group another mind. It's where we get the expression, a mind of its own. The Nazis understood this. They understood if you had a massive crowd, you could begin to manipulate that crowd into a frenzy or a way of thinking that individuals would not have thought apart from that crowd. Now, why am I taking time to talk about this? Because Paul is warning here about revelries. Helps us to understand that when people get into groups to participate in sinful activities, there is a proclivity for those in the group to drop their guard and their inhibitions and begin to take on a new mind thinking that a new mind and a way of thinking that's not their own, let alone God's mind. That's why the Bible warns us about joining in with those who are unbelievers in their folly. We read in Proverbs 1, for example, Solomon, one of the first things he talks to his son about is this peer pressure idea. He says in Psalm, or I'm sorry, Proverbs 1, verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, if they say come with us, Let us lie in wait and shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol. My son, he says, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Are there any examples of this in Scripture? Well, again, of course there are. We think of uh, the, the great feasts in Scripture, Belshazzar, 
in Daniel 5 where he had a thousand of his lords in one big party that ended abruptly, if you remember the story. Uh, in Esther, there was a 180-day feast that was taking place. Interesting little comment in there. It says they served the drinks, but it wasn't mandatory that you drink, which I thought was a really interesting side note there. Uh, we read about Herod. You remember his party in Mark 6 where John the Baptist's head was cut off in the context of a pagan feast. These things uh, don't happen at, well, just they don't happen at church picnics. They happen at pagan type of feasts. I think of the one, there's a big one now out in the West, uh, the Burning Man. You've probably heard of that one going on out there. Uh, this is something that's more and more common in our culture. Again, it doesn't condemn all feasting. God called for feasting in the Old Testament law. But it does warn us that when people who are not morally trained and accountable together, uh, join together, and alcohol is present or some kind of drugs, uh, revelry is likely to break out. What are some principles uh, regarding groups found in Scripture? Where we're told to associate with those who will encourage and challenge you to be better, especially in your walk with Christ and growth in godliness. Proverbs 13.20, he who walks with wise men will be wise. Again, father, son in this particular case, but obviously it broadens to women as well. But the companion of fools will be destroyed. I read recently, I thought it was kind of an interesting quote where this guy said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. That's kind of an interesting thought. You can ponder that. 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. What's the biblical alternative? We already talked about put off, put on. But we put off this idea of joining into crowds that are going to get us into trouble or reveal in us things and create even thinking in our minds that wasn't there before. And we instead, we instead embrace the, the passage such as Hebrews 10 where we're told, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more the day as you see the day approaching. Do you come to church strictly or solely for what you get out of it? Uh, then you need to grow up into maturity and learn what the author of Hebrews is telling us. He says, Consider one another, stir up love and good works. Do you think of that when you come to church on Sunday morning? How can I stir up my brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, let me close with two very quick applications. First, let's avoid moralism. This sermon has a lot of instruction of what to do and what not to do. Let's keep the message of Galatians in mind, and that is the gospel. If you are an unbeliever here today... You need to understand that not getting drunk or just doing good deeds will not and cannot save you. <clears throat> the chasm between you and God cannot be bridged by you turning over a new leaf and being a good person because these do not change your nature. It takes a supernatural work to address your rebellion against God, and it can only be solved through faith in Christ and trust in him the one who can represent you before God. Jesus redirected God's wrath from you onto himself. He lived a perfect life on earth on behalf of others so that his righteousness becomes their own by faith in him. This is the gospel. Someone has to suffer hell for your sin, and it will be you or it will be someone else, and the only one else that can do that is Christ who has suffered it. But even that, even if you get out of, the, out of hell from avoiding his wrath, that doesn't get you to heaven. You need a righteousness 
to get to heaven. And once again, Christ has provided that through his righteous life. If you're a believer, you need to understand that in sinning, and sinning in these areas is not going to condemn you. If you are God's elect, and I recognize that there's a whole question of assurance of your salvation, but if you are one of God's elect, he will never let go of you. You can sin in some of these areas and still be his child. We all still have a sin nature in us. Nonetheless, do not presume upon God. Do not presume upon his grace. He is your heavenly father. And as such, he has promised to discipline the ones he loves. Second and closing application is thanksgiving. Look at those two lists in Galatians 5. You see that that long list of all the sins. And then you see the one right after it about the fruit of the spirit. And look at the contrast between these two. The works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. The amazing, amazing thing is God, we are born with a sin nature that's going to incline ourselves to that first list. And there's nothing that can change that other than the spirit of God in your heart changing it, transforming you. And what has God promised us in Romans 6? He says that when you are one of his people, God has removed <clears throat> the dominion of sin over you. You do not have to give in to sin. And instead, you can put on righteousness. We read, read 2 Corinthians 10, 13, <clears throat> that God always provides a way of escape. We do not have to give them into temptation. We can give him thanks for that. We have much then for which to be thankful as Christians, not just the putting off of the deeds of the flesh, but that work of the spirit in us, the fruit of the spirit promised to us in the verses that we will see in a future time. Let's uh, now praise and thank the Lord. Father, we thank you for these words of scripture, these reminders. Perhaps some of us have been pricked, especially this morning. I pray, Father, that this would be a time uh, that you would use to work through your spirit and through your word to help us to grow in our faith, whether it's to put off the sins of the flesh or to more circumspectly and carefully put on those good deeds that you would call us to do and to reflect that work of the spirit in us. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.